We are starting this morning in a new series. We wrapped up Mark last week after we had really gone through the whole book. Uh, we're going to start, however, uh, with the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians, and, uh, but also read the background of Paul's interaction with the Thessalonian church in Acts 17. So I'm going to start in Acts 17 and then uh, read the first few verses of the letter. So uh, Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out uh, to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now switching over to 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, that is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, as we uh, turn to this book, uh, let's go in prayer asking the Lord to open it up. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word as we listen to it, as we hear it, as we think on it, and that you would make it effective by the power of your spirit at work in our hearts, that we might hear, that we might listen, that we might even put into practice what you call us to. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This week, there was an article in Scientific American titled, so every pastor, of course, picks this up, Psychiatry Needs to Get Right with God. Uh, Of course. Um, It was written by a uh, Harvard medical professor, and uh, this is one of the key observations. He says, in the past year, American mental health sank to the lowest point in history. Incidence of mental disorders increased by 50% compared with before the pandemic. Alcohol and other substance abuse surged, 
And young adults were more than twice as likely to seriously consider suicide than they were in 2018. Yet the only group to see improvements in mental health during the past year were those who attended religious services, at least weekly, virtually, or in person. 46% reported excellent mental health today versus 42% one year ago. Uh, now, we could take a moment to pat ourselves on the back, I suppose. Um, uh, but I, I don't think I'm wrong to guess that many of us have also been affected by these other statistics that were cited as well. Um, now, the point of the article was to ask this question of whether you know, psychology and psychiatry have been blinded to the spiritual side, and of course, it's taking that question from a quantitative standpoint. It won't surprise you to say, I think they should. Uh, but for qualitative reasons, right? Because the question of what you need to do with your life or what is wrong with your life, and more importantly, how do we change what's going on in our lives? Our questions that, however helpful, are the fields of psychology and psychiatry are, they can't answer those questions. Those questions are, quite frankly, much bigger. And this letter to the Thessalonians is asking this, is really approaching this question of how do we change? What does it mean that we've been changed if we're in Jesus? How do we pursue that change? What does it mean to live into that? This is a kind of out of the way letter. It's one of those that doesn't get a lot of airtime, partly because it's short, uh, partly because it has been one of the less controversial ones in terms of church history and interpretation and all those other things. Although, uh, you will see there are some, it touches on a few things that have some pretty crazy interpretations associated with them. But, um, but this is a letter about change. And as we go through it this summer, we're going to be thinking a lot about what it means to be changed. And we start as we read the story of how Paul founds the church in Thessalonica, as we read these opening verses, we are going to think first about what is different about their situation. A different allegiance, a different view of the world, and a different view of their life. Different allegiance, a different world, a different life. So if you think back to, if you look back to Acts 17, uh, it's helpful to maybe get a picture of what Paul is doing. So Paul is on what is often called his second missionary journey because Paul goes on several trips uh, where he goes around telling people about Jesus. Uh, the first one took him to the island of Cyprus and, uh, and then into what is now modern-day Turkey and then back through Syria. The second trip has taken him back through modern-day Turkey and he has, he has started to go into Greece now. And so he's in what, the region of Macedonia, which is uh, where the Greek peninsula meets the European mainland. So it is, it is along what it was called the Ignatian Way, which was a major highway uh, for trade in the Roman Empire. So it's, it's, it's on this major trade route. It's also a major port city. So it is, there's, got a, there's a lot going on in Thessalonica. Uh, it's a pretty big city, 
And Paul goes there, it's about the year 50 AD. Uh, It's a little hard to be too precise on the dates, but somewhere around the year 50 AD. uh, Paul and Silas are on a trip going through. Timothy is probably with them as well, though uh, Luke is highlighting the people that were sent out. So he just mentions Paul and Silas, uh, as we'll see in in a minute. Timothy is, is also with them. But they've been going through, and Paul arrives in Thessalonica, this big city, and he does what he always does. As far as we can tell, if there's a synagogue, and there were a lot of synagogues around major cities in the Mediterranean, he goes to the synagogue first. Because he goes to his own people. Right? Those who were waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And he tells them about him. He tells them that the Messiah has arrived. He tells them about Jesus. And he goes through the scripture. He unpacks it. There's an echo here in, you know, the, the, uh, the author of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, uh, also wrote Acts. And there's an echo here from the end of Luke in chapter 24, when Jesus has risen from the dead, he meets a couple of his followers along the road to a town called Emmaus, and they're telling him that he's died, and it's, he unpacks the scriptures for them to show them how, how this was what had to happen, that Christ had to suffer and to be raised from the dead. And there's an echo here that Paul is doing the same thing when he shows up in the synagogue. He's opening up the scriptures, showing them what they were actually supposed to have expected from Messiah and how Jesus has done it. Again, we've been going through that story in, in Mark's version uh, over the last year. And so it's not a surprise then that as there are converts, and there's a good number of them, right? Some of those who are Paul's fellow Jews are believing that Jesus was the Messiah that they're waiting for. Some of, it sounds like a pretty large number of those who were Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, uh, who were interested, and this was a category, by the way, uh, around the, the Mediterranean, people who found the monotheistic view of Judaism compelling and were interested but had not converted fully. Um, it sounds like a bunch of the Gentiles were very much interested in, in what was going on and believed, and, uh, and a bunch of the women, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, show up. And Jason is probably one of these wealthy Gentiles uh, because he is hosting people, he's doing all these things, and uh, he stands out. He is of particular interest as the crowd gets upset. And notice the charge that they bring in verse 7. They are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Another king. If you were tracking with our series in Mark, this is familiar territory, isn't it? Because this was the very charge against Jesus that was brought to Pontius Pilate, right? Is that he claims to be another king. And we saw back in that series uh, the same problem as the magistrates in Thessalonica face is both, on the one hand, a misunderstanding of what it means that Jesus is king. Right? That they think that what is being talked about by Paul and these other new Christians 
is somebody just like Caesar, but different. That is just trying to sort of usurp power from Caesar. Which is a misunderstanding, of course, of the nature of Jesus' kingship, that Jesus is not interested in simply replacing a human king. But on the other hand, there is something that they do get, that there is a kind of ultimate allegiance that Caesar demanded. That Jesus does usurp. I mean, see, let's make no mistake, right? See, the Caesars claim to be kings over the whole world. More than that, they were beginning already to claim a kind of divine prerogative, actually to be divine themselves. And worship of Caesar was encroaching. So, I mean, honestly, the usurper in, <laughs> from Paul's standpoint is Caesar, not Jesus. What Paul is teaching them, right, is to see the world rightly, to see that God has reclaimed his rule over the world. And so it does rival the allegiance to Caesar in very practical ways. Even though it doesn't, it still means they can honor Caesar. In fact, you know, in 1 Peter, Peter says explicitly, honor the emperor. But it doesn't mean giving the emperor all the allegiance that he claims the right to. It's an important distinction, isn't it? And this problem is, it really has run through the whole Bible and all of church history, that Christians have often seemed to be a threat to the social order, in particular to political leaders. I think you can find it even in the earliest parts of Genesis in its own way, but as you think about uh, Old Testament history, even when Israel, God's divinely appointed political government is in place, there are still those kings, and there were a lot of them, who didn't want to listen to God. They wanted allegiance, but they didn't want to listen to God. So, I mean, this is routine with the prophets that they find themselves at loggerheads with the political authorities, even within Old Testament Israel. Not to mention once the exile comes, right, and we see, uh, you know, people like Daniel, who on the one hand serve and bless the king, but on the other hand refuse to give the allegiance that the king wants in its ultimate sense. And of course, once Jesus has come, once it is clear that God has acted to reclaim all authority in heaven and on earth, it becomes that much more pointed. Now, in our own time, this is harder to see, but no less important for us to understand it is easy for us to still operate with the old Christendom mindset. And by Christendom, I mean the belief that our surrounding society and our Christian beliefs are just kind of neatly interlocking and mutually supporting of one another. And I think the Bible teaches us that that is always actually a delusion. It is never that simple. Of course, we're also becoming increasingly more post-Christian 
And so the allegiances perhaps stand out more starkly. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that there aren't times and places where what Christians believe isn't more generally acceptable than others. I mean, that, that's demonstrably true. The question is whether there are other allegiances that threaten our allegiance to God. And there always are. In fact, sometimes when Christian belief is acceptable, those competing allegiances are more subtle. They're not noticed. One of the benefits of becoming a more post-Christian society is that the contrast is clear. I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. But I am saying we are warned from the very beginning. If even in Old Testament Israel this was a challenge, it is certainly a challenge for any of us in whatever situation we're in. And it's not merely a matter of whether we say we believe. Because we're warned all throughout the Bible that you can say you believe, and that doesn't make it so. I mean, Isaiah said this back in Isaiah 29, right? You can bless me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus quotes that about the religious people in his own day. It's certainly true, I think, of American Christianity often enough. We say we believe, but our hearts are far from God. And the issue then is who, are, who is, has your allegiance? The question to ask ourselves is who do we think is going to save the day? What are we looking for to save the day? Is it political leaders? I would certainly say we, that is... We hear a lot of that rhetoric over the last several elections, right? About this is the only person. I am the only person who can help. Maybe it's your career. Right? At first it's about, you know, getting that job. Then it's about getting the next best job, next job down the line. Then it's about maybe retirement eventually. We're always thinking the next step is going to be the thing that solves all of our problems. We look to romance for this thinking if we find the right person, our life will be so much better. Or maybe if the person that I'm with were just better, my life would be so much better. We look for friendships. Right? If my friends were just better, if I could just find some better friends, this would all be fixed. We look to our children, thinking if I can just get this worked out, things will be so much better. If you ever read the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, it is a kind of fascinating exploration of people who have died and are somewhere in this transition state. I'm not saying the theology is totally accurate. Uh, but one of the things that gets highlighted is over and over again, the different stories and the things people cling to have clung to their whole life thinking this relationship or this pursuit 
are what really matter. They're what make my life meaningful. And yet they're elusive. And they're never fulfilling. I mean, you can, we can tell, you know, by the way, if you've been, if you've had a good life, and if you've been very successful, sometimes this is the hardest thing to see because we live under the delusion, not of needing somebody else to do this, but that we have actually accomplished and achieved much. The question that we ought to be asking ourselves The question that the Thessalonians faced was, who is your allegiance to? And when I'm not, I'm not asking you to stop and chronically doubt, am I Christian all the time? If you're a Christian here, I'm not asking you to be stuck, kind of worried about (laughs) whether you're saved all the time. Rather, to take to heart what the Bible is teaching us, that over and over again, there are always other voices calling on you to put your faith in them to put your trust in them. And our hearts always want to look to something else that's simple, that's easy. That that's a constant temptation. Rather than chronic doubt, I'm calling us to consistent reflection. To consistently looking to Jesus. And thinking, what is it that I'm looking for instead of him? That's the different allegiance. They have a different king. The charge wasn't wrong. But here's the thing. That king has changed the way that they see the world. As the riot starts in verse 5, uh, the city goes into an uproar. Riots were a big deal in the Roman Empire. I mean, they are where, you know, I mean, we, you know, we remember unrest in our own city a year ago. Uh, I'm not going to parse how we think about that, right? But, but, but it's always a big deal. The Roman Empire had a lot invested in maintaining order. It was the mythos that they told about themselves, that they had created order in the world. And so whenever there were riots, not only was that a threat, as in Rome's power might get loose, but it undermined what they actually believed about themselves, that they created order in the world. So whenever there was a riot, it was a big deal. And it was especially a big deal in Thessalonica because Thessalonica was a free city meaning that the Romans did not interfere with how they did their own business in their city. They had a proven track record of supporting and celebrating Rome. And so they were a unique, one of the unique cities that got the privilege of, not, of Rome not really messing with how they govern themselves. But if there's a riot, especially a riot about another king, all of that gets called into question. You can see why the magistrates are pretty worried. All of that could go away. And the charge is that they, in verse 6, that they have turned the world upside down. Things that are valued in this world have been turned upside down. They've been inverted. 
You see, it's not merely that they had a different king, but because of, it wasn't just this, you know, new boss, same as the old boss kind of situation, right? They weren't just switching out leaders, but this king had so radically changed the way that they saw the world that it called things into question. In fact, it called them into question because the one they were celebrating was somebody who had been crucified. That great instrument, symbolically of Rome's power, but who had defeated death. Somebody who had broken the iron grip of Rome. Don't miss that. (laughs) A guy who had been crucified but had still succeeded, profoundly threatened Rome's self-understanding of its own power. And in fact, if he succeeds by crucifixion, it means that military might and the way that they thought about power might be the wrong way. What if power came in a different way? You see why they think the world, these people are calling the world or you know, turning the world upside down? Who we are, where we are, what we are doing, what makes our lives worthwhile is different. See, they told a story in the ancient world. Uh, they told several different stories, but usually of a the world was a chaotic place and the gods had exercised their power and created order. And Rome in particular told the story of a world where there were all sorts of different people doing their own thing, but Rome by its military might had created order, justice, peace, by its might. But the story of the gospel is different. The story of the gospel is that this world, uh, yes, (laughs) can be chaotic, but is restored not by the exercise of might, but by the sacrifice of a loving God who gave himself for us. It treats the dynamics of power completely differently. And listen, our own time is obsessed with the question of power. We think technologically. We think that because we have so many scientific advances, and I don't doubt the good of scientific knowledge, but we convince ourselves that technology will bring happiness, will bring more flourishing, and yet we are less happy than we've ever been. Uh, We are more divided than we've ever been. Well, maybe not ever, but we're pretty divided. We tell ourselves that we occupy the moral high ground, maybe against other people in our society who we think do do not. But the other side likes to point out how hypocritical we are. And it's really hard to deny if we stop and reflect. We like to think 
that the, the answer to questions of power is to answer power with power. Countries do it. I think much of our social discourse is obsessed with this question. And it's not wrong to point out, of course, that power, well, that those who have been disempowered have suffered under it. The question is the answer. That if all we want to do is simply give power to those who have not had it, we will be in a cycle, almost certainly. But if what we see is self-sacrificial love at the center, then we have much better answers, don't we? The possibility for a future. And that is what the Bible teaches us to see, is a possibility of a future where we don't need to hang on to power lest we be crushed by others coming into power who didn't have it before. But rather, we can give sacrificially. We can repent. We can turn from evil and do what is good. You see, the Bible offers us a vision of the world that operates differently. And that is supposed to be what's at work in the church. That's what we're called to live out. And we are, of course, waiting for Jesus to return. But that's what we hold out to the world. We do offer a view of power that is turned upside down. It's not simply a matter of whether you have power or don't have power. But the power of self-sacrificial love. That is the question. And we see that it leads to a different way of living your life. And here we get to the letter itself. You notice Paul and Silas are, are greeting them, and Timothy as well. Again, Luke didn't mention Timothy, uh, but we met him along the way. And Paul writes this letter about a year later. So somewhere around the year 51 or so, Paul is in Corinth, and he has sent Timothy back to Greece. You're going to hear some of this later in the letter. He, has sent, he, has sent, or he sent Timothy back uh, to Thessalonica to check on that church because he had to leave in a hurry. And so he sent them back. He, by and large, Timothy has come back with an encouraging report, and, but Paul also feels the need to sort of keep instructing them in certain ways. So he's sending this letter, and he begins it with grace and peace, as he does almost all of his letters. It's Paul's routine greeting, but it's not an accidental greeting <laughs> because grace is the grounds of our reception and to God and with one another, and peace is the goal with God and with one another. And he tells them, again, like he almost always does at the beginning of his letters, I'm praying for you. Verse 2, I'm praying for you. And that, boy, I mean, I think in Christian talk, that can just easily be sort of like, yeah, 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 you know, I'm praying for you, yeah, or how can I pray for you, or that kind of thing. But Paul, I think it is clear, 
does not think of prayer as a passive thing. It is a belief in the one who reigns on the throne, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So he prays for them. And the thing that he is thankful for is their faith, hope, and love. Do you notice that in verse 3? And if you're familiar with Paul's other letters, those three show up together over and over and over again. Faith, hope, and love. They are the scaffolding on which all the Christian life hangs. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, of course, sends our minds backward to what Jesus has done and accomplished on the cross and the resurrection. Hope gets our minds thinking forward to the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of the dead. And love focuses our action now. Faith, hope, and love are the scaffolding for all of the Christian life. This is not a mistake that Paul introduces them here, just as it is not a mistake that he keeps bringing them up over and over again in his letters. They form the basic structure of what it means to live as a Christian. We're going to see ways in which Paul works this out throughout the letter. But this is so essential to understand because if we want to understand what it means to be the church, if you want to understand what it means to live as a Christian, you have to understand that you need to live by faith, hope, and love. And where those are absent, we're in trouble. When we look around at the church, it is not always easy to see this at work. I mean, think about the news over the last, you know, I don't know how many years, right, about the church. Do you see a lot of faith, hope, and love? I don't know. Maybe it depends on your perspective. Uh, there was another interesting article this week was in Christianity Today by Tish Warren. It was titled, The American Church is a Mess, but I'm Still Hopeful. <laughs> and she talks about uh, watching friends and acquaintances leave the church, others who are in the process of deconstructing, and still others who are deeply disheartened, even depressed about the state of the church. But she goes on and says, you know, we're always looking for the spirit at work where people are doing well and are fruitful uh, and abundant. That's what she, those are her words. She says, but ground zero of the spirit's work is often in the very places where our resources fall short, where problems seem intractable and unsolvable. Because the only thing that will solve those, and this is me adding to it, is faith, hope, and love. Faith is activated where we come to our own end. Where we don't know what else we can do but to trust in the Lord. Hope leads, you know, keeps us from being overly optimistic but also overly pessimistic. It tells us that our expectation is not for a perfect life right now but that God is at work. And love, well, love is the main calling. It is, in the rest of, again, the rest of what Paul writes, it's always the centerpiece. It's the first of the fruit of the Spirit. In Colossians 3, he says, love binds all these things that we're called to do together. 
Love is always at the center of that. I mean, think about, our, think about Christian ethics, right? What are we told to do? What is the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. We are told to love one another in the church, and hmm, this, is the, this is the sticky point. We are told to love our enemies. Now, look, Paul doesn't think of love as a pushover feeling. In fact, I don't know that a feeling is the right category even for what Paul is talking about. Love is determined to care for you. Even when discipline or, you know, confrontation is needed, love is still in play or should be in play. But love is the point of what we are called into. And whenever the church is threatened, and look, again, we, I mean, we are in an increasingly post-Christian environment, and when we feel threatened, is our response a response of love or not? I mean, I'm not saying we don't need to take things seriously and we just dismiss problems or we... We don't deal with sin. No, 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 no. Love wants to deal with those things. But if we are heavy-handed, if we are dismissive, if we are not in concert with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, then it is not love. And no wonder the church's witness is so often anemic, so often lacking. Because we are not living out of faith, hope, and love. So this is the call in First Thessalonians. To live out of faith, hope, and love. And if that seems flimsy, I think sometimes we think it does. It is because we are thinking in terms of the world's way of power. Those are not strong enough to deal with what's going on. Then that betrays that we don't really understand Jesus. We have not really seen the power of the cross and the resurrection, of what it means that we have a Messiah who laid down his life, who emptied himself, and who destroyed sin and death by giving of himself. If we're having trouble living by faith, hope, and love, it is not because we haven't mustered enough strength, exerted enough power. It is because we have lost sight of our Savior. It is because we have lost sight of the real power of Jesus' love for us, his grace for us, his sufficiency for everything we need, and that because he has laid down his life, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. We're going to unpack faith, hope, and love. In, in one sense, the whole series will be about unpacking those. Um, but that's our calling, to live by faith in a Messiah who is different than any other Savior we look to. So let's pray for that. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to have 
our allegiance realigned to you, to trust only in you and not on ourselves, to regard this world through the lens of the cross and of Jesus' self-giving love for us, his self-sacrificial love. And would you teach us then to live by faith in him with hope in all that he will accomplish and with the determination to love one another, to love even our enemies, and most of all, to love you. So would you teach us by this meal more richly to understand the grace of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.